Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. 33 years ago this month, November 1984, I'm sitting in an apartment in Sacramento, California with my roommate. We're both navigators, aviation navigators in the United States Navy, and we're in Sacramento to do some training, some navigation training, just before we get our wings. And uh, my, my roommate is the son of a Methodist minister, and we decided to room together uh, he had taken me to church when we were together in Pensacola, uh, Florida, and uh, I had some questions for Mark. His name is Mark Val. He's actually a pastor now down near uh, down near Dallas, and uh, I had some skeptical questions. And one of the questions I had, I said, "How could Jesus be the only way, Mark?" And uh, he he just quoted John fourteen six to me. He said, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me." I said, "You know, Mark, that's kind of narrow." And we kind of left it at that. Anyway, uh, we got in the car because we're supposed to go to this church, Sunrise Church. We had never heard of it before. Or we heard of it, but we didn't know where it was. We, we had a general idea, and we didn't even know when it started, but we heard it was a good church. So we get in the car. We started heading out to Highway 50 there in Sacramento, and Mark goes, hey, I think, I think we have to go to west to get to Sunrise Church. I said, no, Mark, I think we have to go east. Now, keep in mind, we're two navigators, right? So since I'm driving, we start going east. Well, about eight or nine miles later, there's no rise. There's there's no there's no sign of Sunrise Avenue. Mark goes, "See, I told you it was the other way." Now, a man would rather drive twenty-five thousand miles around the world than admit he was wrong. So I just keep driving. Before you know it, a few minutes later, I see it, Sunrise Avenue. Bam, there it is. I say, "See." So we get off and we find the church, and we start heading into the church. And unfortunately, nobody's coming or going. We're obviously late. As we're walking in the church, someone's walking out. I said, hey, what time did the service start? He goes, 10. Well, I look on my watch, it's 10.30. We kind of slip into the back. It's, it's a gym and uh, basketball hoops on each side. And there's a pastor just kind of standing on a little riser. He just has his Bible open. We sit down. And no more than two minutes after we're there, the pastor goes, and then Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So Mark gives me a little elbow in the side. I go, yeah, yeah, I got it. And then he goes, now some people think that's narrow. <laughs> now Mark's really hitting me in the side. And he goes, but the truth is narrow. He said, if I want to dial my friend here, uh, John here in the front row, I got to dial seven numbers in the exact order. If I don't dial every number in the exact order, I don't get John. I get a wrong number. And that's just the way truth is. It's narrow. Now, I didn't become a Christian that day, but I thought to myself, look, we go to a church. We didn't know where it was. We didn't know when it started. And of the 31,000 verses in the Bible, this guy's speaking about the very verse we were talking about that morning. And so I had some more questions for my friend Mark, and he said, you know what? You just need to get evidence that demands a verdict. I said, what's that? He goes, it's a book by Josh McDowell. It's an evidence book. Look, I never had a problem believing in God. I, I grew up Roman Catholic. I, I never had a problem believing in God. I always knew there had to be a creator, but I just didn't know who this Jesus character was. And so he said, get this book. So we went and got the book, 
And I marked that book up. I read through that book. I also read through uh, More Than a Carpenter. And I finally, in in uh, that, that summer, um, became a Christian. Uh, actually, in summer of 85, became a Christian. And that book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, played a key part in me ultimately accepting Christ. Now, fast forward a number of years later in the late 90s, I actually, at Southern Evangelical Seminary, had an opportunity to help revise Evidence Demands a Verdict. It's called The New Evidence Demands a Verdict. Well, guess what? About 18 years later, it's now being rev- it's been revised again. And the brand new Evidence that Demands a Verdict is out. It's completely updated. It's the expanded edition. It's not only with Josh, but his son, Sean McDowell, who, as you know, he's been on the show several times, is a Ph.D. himself. And so Sean is going to tell us what's new in the book and walk through some of the new evidence in the book. Sean, it's great having you on. Frank, thanks for having me, man. The first thing to realize is there was a lot of work on this update because there were a bunch of mistakes in that 99 version. I well, not enough mistakes to uh, <laughs> to tip me off and go, wow, this isn't true, because th- that book, man, th- there was so much in that book that I said, this has to be true. And then I read More Than a Carpenter, and now you since updated that with your dad as well. That that's There's a new version of that out as well. Those two books, Evidence Demands a Verdict and More Than a Carpenter, were key in my ultimately accepting Christ. And so I'm very privileged to even have you on and talk about this. First of all, tell me, what is new? Now, It's this is the second update now. As I said, the first update was back in like 99, something like that. The second update, uh, what's new in this book right now, the new ev- or Evidence Demands a Verdict? Well, first off, thanks for sharing your story, Frank. It's such a thrill to hear stories like yours. And honestly, everywhere I go, it's amazing, Frank. I'll hear someone say, either I had questions about my faith, and this book helped keep me in the faith, or like you, I was kind of seeker, I was a doubter, and the amount of evidence just brought me to the faith. So I love hearing that the story, in a sense, my father's work has really echoed through you in some ways in your work. So it's oh, just, absolutely, yeah. It's a, it's a thrill. Um, I would say what's different in this book is it's been almost two decades since it was updated and, and part of the team that you were on. And a lot of things have changed. Some of the material was just dated, so we pulled it out. There was also a lot of new finds, manuscript finds, archaeological finds, new arguments that we needed to include. And there were also, just frankly, some objections we needed to respond to that people had written online and in books and journal articles against the new evidence. And there was also some new issues that we needed to address. So I would estimate as best I could that this new book is the same style, it's the same format, but probably 70% fresh material from the previous version. So there's a lot of new stuff here. And some of the articles that are really completely new, for example, the Old Testament section was really focused on what's called the JEPD theory, kind of the documentary hypothesis that there were multiple authors behind the Old Testament. Well, that's kind of a footnote now in Old Testament history. So we go to the beginning, we actually make a case for the historical Adam, a case for the patriarchs, we make a case for the Exodus, the conquest, all the key events and people through the Old Testament, we lay out what historical evidence we have for those. Uh, For Jesus, we have some of the classic chapters that people love, like the Lord, Liar, Lunatic chapter. We have a chapter on prophecy that's been so influential in the Resurrection. But we added two. One is 
whether Christianity is a copycat religion or not, which is a huge question people are asking, as you know. And then also another chapter on the martyrdom of the apostles. So there's some other specifics I could go into, but that's kind of the big picture of how this is different from previous versions. Well, let's talk about some of the new stuff, because as you say, there's plenty of fresh material in here. And uh, we'll start talking about it right now, uh, just a minute or so before the break, uh, and then we'll pick it up on the other side of the break. And Sean, tell us a little bit about the chapter on the martyrdom of the apostles, because we had you on about a year ago to talk about that. That's your doctoral dissertation. What did you find when you investigated the martyrdom of the apostles? Well, this was my doctoral dissertation, and I wrote an academic book out of it. But a lot of the arguments and material has not been funneled down into popular apologetics. In fact, it amazes me, Frank, how frequently I've heard pastors, apologists, people all well-meaning who just don't know and haven't looked at the sources, what the real evidence is in case we can make for the apostles. So I took my 300-page dissertation, I think it's like a 12, maybe 12 or 15-page chapter or so, right? Take Here's the key points, here's the key evidence, here's responses to big objections, so somebody who wants to know what happened to the apostles can really go to just one place and have all the resources there. So I think essentially the argument is often made that we know people will say 11 of the 12 apostles died as martyrs, refusing to recant their faith to the point of death. And I think that's just simply overstating the evidence. Overstating it. We're going to get to it after the break. What do we know about it? Have we been teaching this improperly? Are we overstating the evidence? Sean McDowell is going to tell us. This is from the new book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You need to get this. It's amazing. I've got it in my hands right now. It adds 70% or so of fresh material. You're not going to want to miss it. Evidence Demands a Verdict. Sean McDowell, my guest. Don't go away. We're back in just a couple of minutes. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. I can guarantee you you're not going to hear this on NPR. (laughs) This is the great classical book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, the brand new, completely updated and expanded edition by Josh McDowell and his son, Sean McDowell. Sean, as you know, is a Ph.D., from you went to southern is that right sean am i do i have that right i did my master's at talbot and then my phd at southern baptist yeah phd at southern baptist and his doctoral dissertation was on this very topic the martyrdom of the apostles it, it turned into an academic book you can't afford it it's like over a hundred bucks so sean have we been overstating the evidence for the martyrdom of the apostles is it really true that we're sure that 11 out of 12 died martyrs deaths I think we have been overstating it. In fact, I was sharing my research with a pastor, and he stopped. He goes, man, you're going to make a liar out of all of us. And I said, well, that's <laughs> not my goal. Right. <laughs> I'm not trying to make anybody look like a liar. I said, in fact, there's probably few people who have popularized the death of the apostles and my dad. So I'm not out trying to prove anybody wrong. I'm just trying to say, what do we know, and what's the most accurate information, and how do we best formulate this argument? That's the question. And I think there's a few things we know. Number one, the apostles believed because they had seen the risen Jesus. This wasn't passed on to them secondhand. The resurrection wasn't something added in the second or third century. From the earliest accounts we have, like 1 Corinthians 15, and in the Gospels and letters of Paul, to be a follower of Jesus was to believe 
at least an apostle, that you had seen the risen Jesus. So the apostles believed personally they had seen him. Second, we know they're all willing to suffer and die for this conviction. So just look at the beginning of Acts, which is, as you know, and you cite in your book, a historically reliable text. They are threatened, they're beaten, they're thrown in prison. We see the apostle Stephen killed. And in Acts 5.29, Peter says, we can't stop preaching Jesus because we fear God more than we fear men. So they believe they saw the risen Jesus. They're willing to suffer and die for it. There's no record any of the apostles recanted or gave up this belief. Now, I think this is significant, Frank, because you have debates in the early church about what would happen to believers who falter at the point of death. So if there were even any stories about you know, the apostles doing this, of course someone would have cited it. And second, when you have these critics showing up in the second century critiquing the church, if there were even any possible stories about the apostles bailing on their faith, they would have jumped and said, wait a minute, what about Matthias? What about, you know, Matthew? So there's no record of them recanted, and we know that at least some of them died as martyrs. So I think we can show with a historical record that uh, Peter and Paul and both James actually died as martyrs, possibly uh, Thomas and possibly Andrew. So, Sean, you're saying we, we know reasonably for certain that four of them died, and we've got some pretty good certainty on the other two. What evidence do we have for the four? Well, let's take Peter, for example, who's always listed as the head of the apostles. He's cited more than any other apostle and clearly is one of the key leaders in the early church. What evidence do we have when he died as a martyr? Well, we have actually two first century documents on this. And historically speaking, as you know, Frank, that's significant. This isn't 400 years later. One is the Gospel of John. In chapter 21, you know the story where Jesus says, you know, to Peter that he's he's restoring him after he's betrayed him. And then he says in 2118, he says, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt, walk wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And then verse 19, the author says, he said this to indicate the kind of death Peter would glorify God. Now, this was written probably in the 90s, so Peter was already dead. So the author has to write this, knowing that the tradition would have been widespread, that Peter, in fact, was taken and martyred, just as Jesus was. So that's one first-century document. The second one we have, is actually in a writing uh, from Rome to the church in Corinth called First Clement. And in chapter 5, it refers to both Paul and Peter. It doesn't use the term martyr, but the context clearly indicates that it's their faith and practice and their endurance to the end that they die as the best examples of somebody who lived their faith to the end and had their life taken from them. So that's First Clement chapter 5. We have two references to Peter in the first century. And then you get into the second century. I've counted essentially ten documents till the end of the second century that unanimously indicate, and there's no contrary evidence, that Peter died as a martyr, and some of them indicate in Rome. That's a separate debate, but I think the evidence is pretty clear. When you look at people like Ignatius, you look at Polycarp, that Peter, in fact, died as a martyr. Now, I'll take just give you one other example. Is James the brother of Jesus? What's interesting about this is we actually have a secular source, namely Josephus, in the 90s, in his Antiquities of the Jews, refers to the fact 
that James actually was deposed while he's the brother of Jesus. We know he's operating as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was taken out, and he was killed by the religious authorities. I think the best case, when you look at the context, is he was killed for religious and political reasons, just like Jesus was. We have early evidence for Paul, and then, of course, James, son of Zebedee, is in Acts 12, too. So these four, we have consistent early accounts, in fact, that they died as martyrs. And I would say for Thomas and Andrew, it's a little bit later. You're getting into the second, third century, so it's possible, maybe even probable. But the rest of the apostles, it's late, it's contradictory, and it's hard to know exactly what happened to them. But we don't have to show they all died as martyrs. We have to show they believed in the resurrection. They're willing to suffer. Therefore, they're not liars. They didn't invent this whole story. Mm. And it's actually with regard to Josephus and the death of James, the brother of Jesus. I know when you said secular, you're, you're, you're saying he's non-Christian. He's Jewish, which is probably even a stronger a testimony because the last things the the last thing a Jew wanted to happen was who hadn't converted to Christianity was that Jesus had risen from the dead and here's James according to Josephus actually dying as a martyr uh, right there in 62 AD now all this by the way is in this very compact chapter that Sean and his dad have put into evidence to man's verdict and you can get all this uh, right now in the new version Evidence demands a verdict. That's what we're talking about today. We just happened to zero in on this one chapter. So, Sean, let me just sum this up and correct me if I get anything wrong, because I, I just kind of want a summary statement of the martyrdom uh, passages or, or the martyrdom, what we know about the martyrs. And is it fair to say, then, we have strong historical probability for four of the apostles being martyred? We have moderate historical probability for two others, and for the rest— much weaker, but there is nobody from the ancient world who ever says any of the apostles ever recanted about their faith. Is that a true statement? I think that's exactly true, and the only qualifier I would add is when we say apostles, I studied the 12 apostles, Mm -hmm. but also James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, who were eyewitnesses, leaders in the Church, but not just members of the 12. Okay. But I think you nailed it in the way that you summed it up. That's right. And again, this doesn't show that Christianity is true. It doesn't show that Jesus rose from the grave. It shows the apostles really believed it. They didn't invent this story to get themselves persecuted and then with confidence some of them martyred. Like, that just makes no sense. They're at least minimally reporting what they all think is true. Let me ask a macro question on that then, Sean, because you've been very close to this material in updating this entire 800-page book, by the way. Uh, so this is a great Christmas gift, ladies and gentlemen. It's coming up. It's what? The retail on it is about 30 bucks. You could probably get it cheaper on Amazon. It's a hardcover. But, Sean, let me ask a macro question on that. What do you think is the biggest objection that, I guess, skeptics have with regard to the New Testament testimony. I mean, are they saying they made it up? Are they saying that they were just mistaken? Are they saying that, or is there some other, is there some other sort of position that they give? Here's how we explain all this. What is skeptics? What's, what's the biggest, the biggest thing that they say the New Testament writers did? They were mistaken. They, they lied. Well, what, what is it? 
So I think it's easy to answer that question when we talk about the resurrection. I think the most common objection is the hallucination objection, especially at academic levels. And then this pagan mythology claim is super popular on non-academic kind of lay levels. All right. When it comes to the New Testament, it's such a bigger subject of multiple books and different ways people can critique it, that I actually think when it's all said and done, and this is probably true for the resurrection too, I think the biggest objection is a worldview approach that people bring to the text. I really do. The more I study this and I compare how historians look at, say, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar and Jesus, there is consistently a double standard that's applied in terms of how we know that a document has been passed on accurately, in terms of how we know that a document has been written down carefully. I mean, my father and I, in the chapter on the New Testament, we actually went back, and this took a ton of work, to find out, all right, how many of these other Homer's, Iliads, and Aristotle's writings, and Herodotus, how many of these actual manuscripts do we have compared to the New Testament? And then we contacted people around the world to get the most updated number on the manuscripts for the New Testament. And just since that last book in the 90s, we've been able to document so many more that my dad actually, I mean, you know, my dad's not one for understatement, but as you know him well, he, the way he phrased it, he goes, since I first wrote this book in the 70s, there has been a tsunami of evidence archaeologically, textually, manuscript-wise. And I think it's just either a spiritual blindness, I know some people don't want to hear that, or it's just a worldview that says people don't walk on water, people don't rise from the dead, there must be another explanation. So I'm going to find that explanation, whatever it may be. Now, I can't see how anybody seriously thinks this can be explained by hallucinations. I mean, Sean, the holes in that are just too huge. I mean, the empty tomb? They could have gone to the tomb and stopped uh, any so-called hallucination. And since when do groups have hallucinations at the same time? If I, if we were on the radio today and I said to you, hey, Sean, that was a great dream we had last night. You'd go, Frank, you're nuts. You, dreams aren't corporate events. <laughs> Yet that, this is really their, their, their explanation, hallucinations? Well, I think one of the reasons this has come up is because a lot of the work that Gary Habermas has done he described how, I heard him telling how he did his dissertation, The Resurrection, in the 70s. And almost nobody who was an evangelical scholar believed in the resurrection. He said, now there's these minimal basic facts that scholars agree on. And one of these facts is that the apostles believed they had seen the risen Jesus. All right, hold the thought, Sean. We're going to come back in just a couple of minutes and talk more about that. Sean McDowell's my guest. The new Evidence Demands a Verdict. Actually, it's still called Evidence Demands a Verdict, the new edition. You need to get it. We're back in two. Don't go away. Evidence that demands a verdict, the brand new, completely updated and expanded classic by Sean McDowell, Ph.D., and of course his dad, Josh McDowell, who wrote the original back, I think, in 72, and it helped me quite a bit come to realize that Christianity was true. Before we get back to Sean, I want to point out, in addition to reading something like Evidence Demands a Verdict, Going to Israel can really help you understand the Bible better and realize that we're not talking about, about myths here. We're talking about historical facts. You can go around Israel and see spot after spot 
that the details of the Bible actually are true. In fact, we're going to go to Israel in April with uh, my friend Eli Shukran. Eli is the Israeli archaeologist who excavated most of the city of David and discovered the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed the blind man in John chapter 9. Well, Eli has access to places nobody else has. He literally has the keys to get into some of these places, including a temple underneath the city of David that he discovered. And uh, everywhere we went, now he, Eli is not a Christian, he's, a, he's Jewish, but everywhere we went, Eli would say, the Bible, in the Bible, all the details fit. And it's true, archaeologically, and you'll see a lot of that if you come along with us. If you're interested in coming, we're only taking one bus. I, I did a two-bus thing before, just too many people. We're just going to do one bus. If you want to be a part of it, sign up soon. Go to crossexamine.org. You'll see the banner right there as soon as you come in, uh, right across the top of the website. And you need to sign up soon. We're going, I think, April 6th, I want to say, to about the 18th. And it's a VIP tour. We're staying at the best hotels we can. And some of these hotels are just breathtaking. Uh, because after you, first of all, let me just point it out. This is not walk where Jesus walked. This is run where Jesus walked. Because you're trying to see so much that you're tired at the end of the night. You want to you have a, at the end of the day, you want to have a nice hotel. So we're staying at some nice hotels. Check it out right there. And I think, Sean, you just got back from Israel, didn't you? Man, Frank, I love hearing you talk about this. My wife and I just went with a group of kind of just uh, apologists and speakers, and it was absolutely breathtaking. Some new things that I saw, we went to the north into the area of Dan, and uh -huh. we actually went to the place where the Tel Dan inscription was found in the mid-90s, oh, yeah. the first physical uh, inscription about the historical David in the house. A lot of people doubted how significant David was, biblically speaking. And we actually went right where Jeroboam, it says, you know, the first kingdom of the northern kingdom after Solomon uh, made two golden casts and the people worshipped it. We know exactly where that is today. And oh, it's yeah. It's really that's... just stunning to walk where Jesus walked to see these biblical sites. It really makes it come alive. So I hope people listening will take you up on that offer. Now, when you went to Dan, because I, I was up there a few years ago, did you go right up to the border of Lebanon? Did you do that? We looked, uh, we went close. We actually went really near the border of Syria while uh -huh. we were up in the north. And you could look across and see the cities. And we saw huge black smoke from oh, the really? war itself. I mean, you could see that a bomb was dropped. Up in the Golan Heights? We is, is that where the Golan Heights? Because we're going to probably yeah. hit there as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's right basically that area where the Golan Heights is. Yeah, it's amazing. We were up there last year as well, and they have these bunkers up there, and it's, I mean, there's so much. It's not just New Testament. You'll 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 go to places where the Old Testament was very prominent, like you just mentioned, Tell Dan there, and uh, this is just an amazing trip. So if you want to be a part of it, go to crossexamine.org and uh, click on events, or just click on the banner that'll come up immediately. And I say it's going to be this April. Now, Sean, back to the evidence demands a verdict, the brand new expanded and updated edition. And uh, we were talking just before the break about uh, the resurrection and what explanations that the skeptics are giving. I know you have a chapter in here kind of at the end, an appendix about Bart Ehrman. And I've noticed recently, and I verified this uh, with some scholars, that Bart Ehrman used to, I think, uh, have a 
position he would take with regard to the resurrection. I think hallucinations was one of the positions that he would he would take, and now he doesn't take any position. And I think Sean, it's because he knows that any position he takes, any counter or, or alternative theory to the resurrection he takes, Christians are just going to shoot holes in it because none of them work. Why? Well, I- I don't know exactly what position he's taking now, but I know he used to accept the burial tradition when he first interacted with William Lane Craig. And then on his later interactions and writings, he pulled away from that. And I've heard some scholars say, well, if you're going to reject the empty tomb, you kind of have to reject the burial story, because if you adopt the burial story, the empty tomb is very close behind it and a lot harder to reject. So... I don't know his motivations, I don't know him personally, but I think a lot of people have seen the strength of the resurrection, see that if you accept certain facts, then you rule out hallucination, like you said. You can't rule out the idea Jesus didn't exist. I mean, even Bart Ehrman says it's crazy to say Jesus didn't exist. You accept these facts, there are very few, I would say, even any alternative explanations, hallucinations included, that can account for these basic things we know, like the death burial, and appearances of Jesus. Now, you did say, and by the way, the book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, is divided into five parts. I'll just read the parts real quickly. These are headings, and there's subchapters under each of these headings. Part one is evidence for the Bible. Part two is evidence for Jesus. Part three is evidence for the Old Testament. Part uh, four is evidence for truth, and I'm putting part five in there, which is really an appendix uh, epilogue, that kind of thing. It's, it's, It's marked out as four parts, but there's really five. Actually, let me point out that uh, there's even a part in the beginning, which is even before the the, uh, the the page numbers start starting at one, you've got these Roman numeral pages. You have a whole chapter on the theistic or the evidence for a theistic universe here. So, Sean, there is so much in this book that wasn't in the original. But let me go back to what you had mentioned earlier. You said hallucinations is a big deal. Then you also talked a little bit about the copycat theory that, Jesus, the whole Jesus story is copycatted from pagan resurrection myths. It's chapter 11 in Evidence Demands a Verdict. Give us some reasons why the New Testament story is hasn't been copied from pagan resurrection myths. Well, Frank, you shared your story at the beginning and some of the questions and doubts that you had becoming a Christian. Well, this idea of pagan mythologies was close to my own story. I mean, I grew up thinking someone wasn't a Christian because they just hadn't read evidence demands a verdict, or more than a carpenter. I thought, how hard is it? Just read the book. There's the evidence. Right, right. And then when I was kind of 19 years old, fishing around on the Internet, I realized the entire skeptical web began responding to evidence that demands a verdict. And I'm a 19-year-old kid, unequipped to answer some of these charges by lawyers and doctors and historians, and I read this idea that Jesus didn't even exist, and Christianity was copied after Mithras and Adonis and Isis. And I had never heard that before. And it really sent me into a tailspin, so much so that I told my dad, I'm like, I don't even know if I believe this anymore, if these kinds of claims are true. Well, now I look back at these objections, and I just chuckle, because there's some good objections we got to deal with, and there's some bad objections. And the idea that Jesus didn't exist, and Christianity's copied after these pagan mythical deities, like we saw in movies like The Da Vinci Code or Bill Maher's Religalist, is ridiculous. There's no good reason. In fact, this was really popular in scholarship in the early 19th century. That's when it was popular. (laughs) Well, here's a few reasons why, and you can 
cut me off if I'm going too long, but oh, go ahead, quickly. Man. One reason is if you want to understand the early Christian church, it's essentially unanimous among scholars that you don't look towards the pagan culture, but you look towards Judaism. Right. Christianity has Jewish roots. Paul says, I am a Jew among Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. Jesus was a Jew. So Christianity is not coming out of paganism. It's coming out of Judaism. But I think even more critical for this theory is that all of these so-called parallels between these dying and rising gods are totally exaggerated. So I read on Wikipedia a while ago, it said, Osiris was resurrected like Jesus. And I'm sure someone's changed it. When you look at the story of Osiris, he was murdered by a jealous brother, cut up into different parts, thrown in the bottom of the ocean, gathered together, and then he becomes god of the underworld. Does that sound at all like a resurrection that Christianity would be patterned after? (laughs) Right. I mean, there's no way that they stole that idea. And a third problem, we actually listed in this chapter, I personally paid a lot of attention to this chapter, because it was part of my own story, to make sure that people who hear this could have one chapter to go to that just, I think, really demolishes that idea. And the other problem is dating, meaning that these myths exist in some form before the Christian story, but any of the supposed parallels that are significant all come after. So ironically, if there's any significant borrowing going on, it's these pagan myths borrowing from Christianity not the other way around. That's why I think this idea is just crazy, and yet because of the internet, because people haven't been trained in apologetics, there's something about this idea that just rocks people when they first hear it. Now, friends, I know this is going to be a bit shocking to you, but not everything you read on the internet is true. Just want to throw that out there. And uh, so you got to get the scholarship behind it, and the experts on this say that this copycat theory just doesn't work and Sean and his father Josh have done a great job right here in evidence that demands a verdict the chapter chapter 11 started on page 303 and there are five reasons the mystery religions did not influence Christianity Sean just mentioned two or three of them right there there's more so you need to pick that up as well or you get that when you get evidence demands a verdict now Sean how long did it take you guys to update this whole thing and expand oh my goodness Next to my Ph.D. dissertation, this is the biggest project I've ever worked on. We had three dozen graduate students, mostly from Biola, but we had uh, one from Liberty as well. We had about 12 to 15 top scholars in the world go through the material, people like Mike Lacona, uh, Craig Blomberg. I mean, some of these top scholars. Craig Keener is in here. uh, Keener did not go through it, although he posted that he put a Facebook post that he was thrilled to be cited in there so much because it was actually key in his own journey when he was younger. Oh, oh, I, really... because cause I'm looking through here. I see Keener's quotes, and I'm going, I thought maybe maybe he reviewed it, but you're just citing him, I see. Okay, yeah, we're cite- he didn't help us with a manuscript, All right. um, which is fine, but we had scholars on the caliber of, you know, just Longberg and uh-huh. Craig Evans and you know, these kind of leading scholars going through chapter by chapter. We got old top Old Testament scholars. So we had students research, write, edit this, and then every chapter we'd send to somebody who was an authority on that subject. And I said, mark it up, critique it, show me where it's wrong, help me make it stronger, so we could really confidently have 
what I think is the best. And there's so much more in Evidence Demands a Verdict. We'll delve into it a little bit more in our final segment with Sean McDowell. You need to get this book. Makes a great Christmas gift. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Don't go anywhere. More with Sean McDowell in just a minute. Friends, as you know, I go to a lot of college campuses and interact with skeptics, atheists, Muslims, agnostics, Christians, and uh, these are normally captured on video, and many of them are on our website. You can see is probably hundreds of these little Q&A videos. We're going to start sending one out a week in email because no matter where I go, these are the videos that people say help them the most, these little short Q&A videos. And I think part of that is because they get to the point very quickly, and these are the kind of things that people want to have when they're conversing with other people about issues related to Christianity. If you want to get these once a week, go to our website, crossexamine.org, and uh, click on subscribe, and you'll get one email a week. I think we're going to send it mostly on Tuesday, and it's just going to have one video in it. They're normally four or five minutes long. You can share it with other people. And uh, we just sent our first one out this past Tuesday, and people seem to enjoy it. So sign up. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on subscribe, and you'll be a part of that. You, of course, you can unsubscribe at any time, but we're going to send one out a week, one email out a week, and uh, I think people will find them Helpful. Also, I want to mention uh, we have CIA coming up again next August. It will be in Dallas, Texas again, center of the country. And uh, we're also going to do an advanced CIA. This is mostly for CIA graduates or people who are that caliber in their ministry. They're, they're further along in their ministry and they want to take it to still another level. That's going to be held in May here in Charlotte, North Carolina, just north of Charlotte. All the details are on our website, crossexamined.org. Check it out for CIA and advanced CIA. And Sean McDowell is one of our instructors. And Sean is our guest today. We're talking about Evidence Demands a Verdict, the brand new, updated, expanded edition of the classic Help Me Bring Help Bring Me to Faith and so many thousands of others. And about 70% fresh material in here. But before we go back into some evidence, Sean, I gotta ask you this. Is evidence even important anymore, most you know, to our culture in general? I mean, what th- th- does evidence really make a difference? I'm glad to hear you ask this question because when my father first wrote "Evidence That Demands a Verdict," what made this book unique is that nobody had access to this information. A lot of the information he traveled around the world trying to disprove Christianity was in libraries in Europe and in the Middle East. So he brings it back, puts this book together, which was really just his notes, and it sells like gangbusters for months and months, and actually was considered by World Magazine one of the top 100 books of the 20th century. But now, what is it, 40-some years later, 45 years later from when he first wrote it, there's a lot of apologists, there's endless information on the Internet. So what would make a book like Evidence significant? I would say... One thing is I've become really to believe in our age of endless information, trust is one of the most important commodities. When everybody has a voice, people are asking the question, which voice should I listen to and why? And my dad's been faithful in ministry 50-some-plus years. There's just a trust, I think, with his name and the brand evidence that people say, all right, there's so much stuff out there. That makes you unique. And second, we'll save people the time. You can go find the information, but if you want one volume that really captures all of these different key apologetic issues, 
this one will help you. And frankly, I talk with students all over the place, everywhere I go, and I get questions. Did Jesus rise from the grave? Why does God allow evil? Can a Christian believe in evolution? These questions are pressing. In fact, I've seen recent studies of Generation Z, and Gen Z has higher doubts than previous generations. But one study from Barna, which will officially be released in January, said that 50% of Gen Zers are open to evidence for religious claims. That's an astounding and interesting statistic that should be encouraging to the Church if we get the value of apologetics, and especially to apologists as we work with this younger generation. And, of course, I think the point here, too, is even if many people decide that evidence isn't important, what we do is we continue to do what's right, we preach the truth, and we leave the results to God. Uh, Obviously, many times in Church history or Bible history, Evidence wasn't important at all. I mean, take a look at the uh, at the uh, Israelites. They see God do miracle after miracle, and uh, they wander a little bit. Moses goes up on the hill for a night too long, and suddenly they're worshiping the golden calf, and you go, hey, you guys are fickle here. What's going on? So I think it's the human condition, and what we need to do is just keep doing what's right, keep presenting the evidence. Yeah, many people are just going to dismiss it, but there are several people out there who are going to come to faith. I know I came to faith through evidence. A lot of people come to faith through evidence. I'm sure you get emails all the time, Sean, or people telling you personally all the time that your such and such a book has helped. So we just keep doing what's right. And I'm encouraged to hear that at least more than 50% or so of uh, the gen, what are we calling them now? The Well, gen. some call it the iGen, the uh-huh. transgen. Probably yeah. the most popular term is Generation Z. Generation Z. These are these are folks that are born after 9-11 pretty much, right? This would or, be those that are 7 to about 22 right now. Okay, all right. So not, not quite. So maybe even before 9-11. Uh, but uh, they're after the millennials, in other words. Yep, they're the post-millennial generation. And yep. the reality is, though, while they're open to evidence, this is the first time I think we're really seeing with, with this generation that feelings trump even science. Mm. Yeah. Why don't you feel that way? I saw an article just today about a white guy who feels like he's Filipino, and his feelings make it reality for him. Now, this doesn't mean people don't care about evidence. It means we need to think through what are the objections people really have? How do you present evidence in a way that's compelling and attractive and make sense to people. But those are some of the changes we're seeing with this younger generation. Man, it just goes to show you how easily human nature is to deceive itself. That people would actually say, for example, as I just saw a Pew Research uh, uh, survey just this past week, 77% of college-educated Democrats think that Gender is not actually determined at birth or assigned at birth, that you can decide whatever gender you want. And it just seems to me, Sean, that if people are willing to deceive themselves that much, they can certainly deceive themselves about the truth of Christianity if they want to. It's very easy to do. You know, I think we're honestly seeing play out right in front of us Romans chapter 1, which says God makes his, you know, his existence and certain attributes plain, and it's clear, but people suppress them in unrighteousness. So, especially
especially today in a world in which there's endless information. And if somebody ever wants to find a way out of the resurrection, out of intelligent design, of course there's a way out of that because there's endless information for people to do that. It's our job to present the truth in a clear way, in a compelling way, I think in a fair way. And this is one of the things my dad and I went to paint on an updated evidence and said, let's lay out the evidence as firmly as we can, but let's not overstate it. Right. The evidence is powerful. Christianity is true. We don't have to overstate it and make up statistics, because in the past, if you gave a lecture, people couldn't sit there and Google and check it right there. But now you know, while we're speaking, people are sitting there checking their phones and all the facts that we say. So you have to get it right. That's why through this book, we went through and just checked our facts. And we had people check quotes two, three, four times to make sure it's right. Because one of the quickest ways to lose credibility in this culture is just to get your facts wrong. Evidence demands a verdict. Completely updated. It's an expanded classic. And we're just scratching the surface in our conversation here with Dr. Sean McDowell. So you really need to get this book. Uh, you need to give it at Christmas to people who are interested in evidence. Uh, and it, it would make a great Christmas gift because it's a hardcover. Now, Sean, we just got a couple minutes left. There's so many other chapters we could talk about in evidence. But I just want to uh, bring up and ask you a little bit about the prologue uh, regarding theism. That's new in evidence that demands a verdict. What, what's in that chapter, that, that there is a God? What, what, what kind of arguments do you go through in there? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this chapter, because my training is really in philosophy. I look at apologetics through a philosophical lens. My dad looks at it through a historical lens. Right. And I think the best is to put the two of them together. So typically, evidence in more than a carpenter. My dad would just lay out the evidence. Deity Christ, the evidence Jesus rose from the grave, and the New Testament is true. This prologue is saying, wait a minute, there's huge problems with naturalism, and here's positive evidence for intelligent design. So the origin of the universe, free will, uh, objective morality. And even Anthony Flew said, essentially, if there is a God, then it makes a miracle that much more probable. So the prologue is kind of laying the groundwork that says, look, if physical forces can't explain complexity and we go into even consciousness and morality, then there's more to this universe than matter. There's mind behind it. There's an intelligence behind it. Maybe this mind has made himself known. So this whole prologue is setting up why it's important to understand first the theistic evidence that there is a God, and then when we go in the scriptures, deity Christ, Lord, liar, lunatic, there's an expectation and even a worldview that says, okay, there could be a God. Let's see if the evidence makes sense that this God has in fact revealed himself. That's entirely new in this updated version. And there's a lot more new in evidence that demands a verdict again. Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, they put their heads together on this. They had a whole team of people fact-checking, researching, as I think you did in every edition. I was part of the team that did it back in 99. I don't know if you took one word. Well, you weren't part of that, Sean, at the time. But one word I said, <laughs> there were was, there was so many people working on it, and it really... Uh, demonstrated the strength in numbers because when you have so many people and so many scholars and so many researchers uh, checking and cross-checking you can really come up with an amazing work and this book here friends is 800 pages okay you don't have to read it cover to cover but you can just pick out a chapter pick out a section and as Sean said earlier it really crystallizes the main arguments for and against a particular position so it's a great work Sean thanks for being a part of it and doing it Oh, thanks for your help in the 99 version, and uh, 
for having me on. Keep up the good work. Hey, Sean, tell us uh, where folks can get in touch with you uh, outside of our website. You're on our website, like Cross Examine. What's your website? SeanMcDowell.org. SeanMcDowell.org. And if you link, we'll send you a signed copy. There you go. SeanMcDowell.org. Check him out, ladies and gentlemen. And also check him out at CIA coming up next year, next August. You want to be a part of it, he'll join me and many others. I'm Frank Turek. Make sure you check out Evidence That Demands a Verdict, a life-changing truth for a skeptical world. See you next time. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.